Hello, welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we are going to talk about 10 keys you can use to build better basketball players. Now, this is a show that I have wanted to record for months, if not at least the last year, because growing up, basketball was my first love. It was something that I always enjoyed doing. I mean, I grew up in the country, my friend. And when I say country, I mean country, country. Like there were no other people my age. This was in the pre-internet era. So I didn't have, you know, all these different gaming consoles and platforms to be playing on. And one thing I could always rely on was that my basketball hoop was going to be out back. And it didn't matter, sun, rain, there were days there was snow and ice on the ground. I could walk outside my door and get buckets. And this just evolved over the years. In the summer, as I got older, my dad would take me in. He was a professor at Ball State University. And just lo and behold, literally right outside his building was Ball Gymnasium. And I could go in there basically all day, every day, and just get buckets and work on my game. And so for me, as a basketball player, I was willing to tighten any screw. I would go to camps. I would watch VHS tapes of games and like break down film. And basically anything I could do to improve my game, I was willing and up for. So when physical preparation become a, became a piece of that, I knew this is something that I can really do to level up my game because I was a late bloomer. I was never the biggest kid on the court. So when our high school got their first weight room, it was in between my sophomore and junior years. And I just knew, look, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm going to go in here and I'm going to do whatever I can to make myself better. So I'm doing literally the dumbest stuff imaginable, right? Like we had one room that was all selectorized weight equipment. It wasn't Cybex, but it was along those lines. And so I'm literally doing sets of 100 on these different machines. Our coach had found this program that said sets of 100 were something worth doing. So we did it. And it's like sets of 100 on the leg curl, on the leg extension, on the chest press. And, you know, we had another room that was like almost this boiler room where we had all this hand-me-down equipment where like 160 was like a square and 160-pound dumbbell was like a circle. I mean, it was just crazy. I wish you guys could have seen this. But as you know, when you're getting started, you can do anything and you can get stronger. You can become a little bit better athlete. So after like six to eight weeks of even the most ridiculous training imaginable, I started to notice changes, right? There's a little bit more zip on my passes. There's a little bit more range on my jump shot. And the big thing for me, again, being that kind of undersized late bloomer, was my freshman year of high school, I got my ass kicked every day in practice, just beat up and down the court. And these guys were huge. I mean, these were men. So they're 18, grown ass men. I'm 14, just getting pummeled and just wiped the court all over. And this summer, you know, those guys are coming back. And I noticed by the end of the summer, like they're not pushing me around anymore. Like I can, I can hold my ground. And by the time they come back in between my junior and senior years, now literally the the roles have reversed. I've been in the weight room a little bit more. I've gotten a little bit smarter about my training and I realized, damn, okay, now I'm pushing these dudes around. So basketball and, and training for basketball is something that I've been passionate about my entire life. I've been around the sport for the last 20 years in some way, shape, or form, whether it was rehabbing athletes, whether it was working with collegiate athletes at Ball State, whether it was working with high school athletes when I was working at University High School, now to working with guys that are in the collegiate and elite or professional level. So 
The reason I'm recording this podcast is because I firmly believe, are we better off now than we were 10 years ago? Yes, 20 years ago. Yes, 30 years ago, most definitely, right? Again, just thinking back to all the plyos and even like the crazy stuff like jump soles. You know, if you're 20 plus years into this game, 25 plus years, you probably remember the jump soles. And you knew that, man, if you got those jump soles within six to eight weeks, you should have some bunnies and you should be dunking. But we're better off now as an industry but I don't think we're where we want to be. And I don't think we're where we can be. So today, that's what we're gonna talk about. 10 keys that I found to be of critical importance if you wanna build better basketball players. So enough for me, let's dive in. And bullet point number one, I'm bringing the heat right off the bat. Number one, for the love of all that is holy, teach your basketball players how to squat. You got to do it. You got to teach them how to squat. Is it hard? Yes. Do they have the best leverages? No. But is it something that's critical to their development as an athlete and as a basketball player? 100% yes. Now note, I said teach them how to squat, not blow them up with heavy squatting day in and day out. We're not trying to make power lifters. That is not the goal. I'm not trying to teach them to box squat four or 500 pounds. At a certain point, we lose the benefit of that. And we're gonna talk more about lifting later on. But squatting is a truly fundamental movement pattern, not just in the sense that most humans need to be able to do it, but one that every basketball player has to be able to do to get into a defensive stance and to play defense. Now, again, we can come back, and I kind of have, whenever I hear the word defense, I kind of have this idea of Allen Iverson, practice. We talking about practice? Same thing with defense. A lot of your basketball players are like, defense, man, we talking about defense? I want to score buckets. You know, I want to be the man. Well, that's great. But the higher level you go, you know, unless you are James Harden or you are an Allen Iverson, look, you got to be able to play defense. You've got to be able to play defense. So let's break down what a squat should look like, right? And this is the Mike Robertson perfect model of squatting. But a well-executed squat incorporates these things. The athlete can feel the whole foot. The torso is upright or relatively upright. The hips are flexed. And one of the key ingredients here is that the tibia is angled, right? The knee should be over the toes. That's how a squat should look. Now, you can coach a box squat. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I think there's a lot of merit to coaching box squats for building the posterior chain. But on the flip side of that, if we wanna teach an athlete how to squat and how to change levels, we need to teach them how to perform what I would describe as a squatty squat. Now, let's look at what a good defensive position looks like. Hmm, okay, well, we want them to feel the whole foot. The weight's probably shifted towards the toes a little bit, but they should feel the whole foot. Their hips are flexed. Well, their torso should be relatively upright. You don't want their chest facing the ground. That's not the best position to be in and they need an angled tibia. Hmm, that sounds eerily familiar. It sounds a lot like a freaking squat. So, you know, teaching a, a basketball player how to squat. And again, it's not about loading them up and turning them into a power lifter, but teaching them to pattern a squat, to load a squat effectively is hugely important. And a lot of people would come back with, oh, well, you know, they're already quad dominant. Well, I would challenge that. And are they quad dominant? Yes but it's based on a position that their body is essentially stuck in. They don't have movement options. They're stuck in this hard anterior tilt, 
So they have to load their lower back. They have to load their quads. They have to load their gastrocs. But I would describe these as fake quads. Now, you may not have heard this term before. It's because I just made it up. But this concept of fake quads means, man, they look big and strong, but they actually struggle to hold position and or when you ask them to change levels using them. Because don't think of the quad just as a knee extensor. Don't just think textbook anatomy. Think of the quads as a muscle group that helps control knee flexion. So if you are sitting down into a squat, the quads are eccentrically controlling that motion. That's pretty cool, right? So that's where your functional anatomy comes in. And shameless plug, this is something I talk a lot about in my upcoming complete coach certification. We can't just think concentric muscle function anymore. Think eccentric muscle function. So here's how I describe this to my athletes, because maybe they're not super jazzed up about, about playing great defense. But we can talk about how a squat can help them change levels. But more importantly, the way I describe it is that some of the best basketball players in the world go from playing in a vertical sense, right? So they're jumping up, they're coming down, they're landing to into a horizontal position. So maybe now they're accelerating or they have to break down. Well, the quads are pretty important there too. And then they need to gather. They need to get their feet underneath them. Maybe they're going to go up and go up for a layup or go up for a dunk or they need to get their foot out in front of them. They need the quads to help them decelerate, right? Teaching them how to squat gives them so many beneficial tools that they will use in every aspect of their game. So I get it. Is it hard? Yes. Do they have the ideal leverages? No. But does that make it any less relevant or any less important? Absolutely not. Teach your basketball players how to squat. Number one. Number two. Use the tools that you're comfortable with in speed development. Now, I realize this may seem a little odd. And honestly, this point could be taken across basically all avenues of sports performance about using the tools that you're comfortable with versus what another coach or maybe a guru or a mentor tells you to do. You got to use what you're comfortable with, what allows you to be successful. But I do have this bone to pick, especially when it comes to a lot of the hate that's coming right now from band work. So it's funny, but there's all these speed gurus out there now. And, and, and I don't know where these people came from, right? And, and I'm not the hating type, but it's almost where like the strength world was 15, 20 years ago, where everybody had, they knew everything about strength training, right? They had all the answers. And if you weren't doing things their way, you were wrong. But now it's like, we're seeing the same thing with speed. You know, everybody's got all the answers. They don't need to do what you're doing. And if you're not doing it the way they're doing it, you're wrong. It's crazy. And look, I get it. I get it. When it comes to speed work, sprinting maximally with all out effort is critically important. It can help you become faster. It can help you become more explosive. It desensitizes the nervous system. It prevents injury. I could go on and on and on. Nobody here is ever going to say, that explosive max effort sprinting is not important. But look, at the same vein, you know, you rarely, if ever, hit top speed in basketball. So, like, I get it, but at the same time, at some point, you have to become contextual what, with what you do. So, in basketball, there's a lot of accelerations, there's a lot of decelerations. So, as part of your GPP phase, if you wanna do that max effort sprinting, that's great. 
but you don't necessarily use that and forget about everything else that could potentially be valuable. So let's talk real quick about the reasons that I use bands for speed development. And it's not just speed development, it's for overall athleticism when it comes to basketball players. So there's two ways that I use bands. First, it's for band resistance, all right? And some of this is influenced by Lee Taft, some of it is my own experience, but number one, it slows momentum. Some athletes either don't want to or should not be going fast early on in their training program. Sometimes it's not about seeing how fast and explosive you are on day one. It's managing the process. We talk a ton about slow cooking our athletes. Well, that's true when little Johnny's 12 and managing him until he's 18. But sometimes that's true in the course of an off season as well. You know, so if I get an NBA athlete, bro, I'm not max sprinting that guy week one. I don't care what your speed manual tells you to do. I have to manage that process. He just played a 90 plus game season. He probably sat on a beach for two to three weeks. There's a way to manage the process. So I'm going to use that band to slow the momentum down early on. It also helps build contextual strength. So weight rooms are great. I want to build general quad strength, general posterior chain strength, all fine and dandy. But I think there's an element of contextuality that's important with our strength work as well. So it gets them into positions that they're familiar with, and it allows them to develop strength in those positions. Last but not least, it's really great for coaching and cueing. Sometimes I don't want to have to use 30 cues to get somebody in the position I want. I can put a band on them and immediately they lower their center of gravity and they widen their base. It's a win-win for me. I don't have to coach as much. They feel what I want them to feel and they get into the right position. So band resistance is great for early in the off season and perhaps for somebody that's coming off an injury. So band resistance, awesome. Band assistance, Man, this is something that I've been using off and on since 2002. Believe it or not, this was actually a key, po key portion of my thesis research at Ball State. I'll give you the 30-second overview. But we get the women's volleyball team at Ball State. And Dr. Newton and I set up this amazing training protocol. We're like, oh, this is how we're going to train them this whole in-season period. We're going to blow them up. We get them in and we test their squatting performance and their average back squat max is about 1.1 body weight. So we were talking about some massively, in the terms of a weight room, weak individuals, weak athletes. So we had to kind of change gears. We do basically a three-week strength block. And on average, we put an inch on these girls' verticals in season. And it would have been more, but we had an outlier. The Libero lost like three inches because the girl never jumped. <laughs> so there's a, the coordinative aspect to jumping too. Anyway, we put like an inch on their vertical, we stabilize for three weeks, and then we do a band-assisted jump training protocol. So what was really cool there was when we add in this band assistance to improve their explosiveness, their vertical jump stayed the same. So we, we kept that inch basically on their vert, but their power went through the roof. So pretty cool stuff. Now, why would you want to use band assistance or why do I use it now? Number one, it increases momentum. Right? It's on the flip side. So if you really want to make a massive impact with regards to eccentric strength or to control or deceleration, band assistance can really or excuse, yeah, band assistance can help you out there. It's also great in the, the grand scheme of things when you're trying to get an athlete ready for their preseason or late in the offseason, right? Because it exposes the nervous system to a different stimulus. 
and it exposes them to higher speeds and forces. Now, one thing that, that Dr. Newton and I, at least at that point in time, used to think about was how this, this challenges the nervous system to coordinate itself faster, right? So if you're used to going at 100%, that's great, and the body can coordinate whatever movement we're talking about in that fashion. But maybe when you're going at faster than 100%, now the nervous system gets this new stimulus, and it's like, okay, how do I coordinate this pattern? Or how do I coordinate these segments to work even faster than I have in the past? All right, so that's how I use bands. I use it for band resistance early in the off-season, and I use band assistance late in the off-season or to prepare them for the preseason. But keep in mind, band work is only one part of the program. I'm still using med balls. I'm still using plyometrics. I'm still using foundational strength work. And of course, I'm using the reactive speed work to really kind of bring it all together. So at the end of the day, stop the hating, my friend. If you don't use that tool, that's fine. Just keep your negative naysay to yourself, right? Focus on the 80, 90% that we're all doing at a really high level. And just understand that at the end of the day, every coach should use the tools that they're most comfortable with to make their athletes faster. Number three, heavyweights absolutely have a role. Most of the time, and in the right doses. All right, so let me unpack this a little bit. When I was training athletes way back in the day, I was so influenced by my powerlifting background. And I thought I could remove my own biases. I thought I could be objective. But I proved time and again that I could not. And I clearly remember one of my favorite athletes, the one and only Catherine Volker, AKA K-Dog, getting her ready for a preseason camp one time. And we're like a week out from camp and I have this girl just straining underneath a back squat. And I remember watching that and thinking, why the heck am I doing this? How is this helping her become faster or more explosive on a soccer pitch? So while it wasn't necessarily a failure, I reflected on that and realized there's gotta be a better way to do things. And that's when I started employing what I called a modified max effort phase with my soccer players. So I knew they didn't necessarily need what we would describe as true max effort strength. They didn't need like 0.3 meters per second under a squat or 0.15 meters per second under a barbell bench press. They just didn't need that. But I knew that they needed to get stronger and I felt like they needed to push more weight. So what started to happen was I started to realize that hmm, all of these tools that we employ, whether it's the weight room, whether it's plyometrics, whether it's speed training, they're all just stimuli. They're just different stimuli that we can use to improve force output, to increase tissue resiliency, and just create different adaptations within the body. When I started to think like that, man, it totally shifted my perspective for how I train my athletes. So certain athletes, absolutely, they need to be exposed to higher intensities to improve athleticism and explosiveness. They need that. And I would say that a lot of your younger athletes, after they go through that initial, say, two to three years where you're slow cooking them, you're building the movement patterns, you're getting them comfortable, comfortable under a bar, young athletes need to learn how to develop intensity, to create intensity. Older athletes need to learn how to manage their intensity. It needs to be dosed more appropriately and more effectively. So 
when we're talking about where does this fit into a program, when are you going to push weights with a basketball player? Well, in my scheme, you know, I've got these guys, you know, three to four months. Generally, I'm going to use this midsummer. I'm going to push heavier stuff midsummer because I want that first four to six weeks to rebuild movement patterns, to clean up any aches and pains, to build some tissue tolerance. Then it's go time for me. That's where I'm going to try and get these guys stronger. Or maybe it's just rebuild their their old strength capacity, right? Sometimes they don't necessarily need to get stronger per se, but you need to rebuild their strength limit or their upper upper crust of their strength levels. So you got to find the exercise that's best suited for them. Now, there's lots of ways you can skin the cat, right? But when it comes down to it, the variations that I'm always coming back to, I'm always trying to find some form of a front squat variation. Now, I'm going to give you some context here. Sometimes that is as low level as a plate squat. I had a basketball player last year that had such horrific knee and hip pain. We do not do anything heavier than a plate squat all summer. I, I take that back. I think at the very end, we were goblet squatting with a 16 kilo kettlebell. But this dude put an inch and a half on his vert in like six weeks because we made him more efficient. All right. So that may be an outlier. But for most of my athletes, it's going to be either a two kettlebell front squat if they're newer or if I'm not as happy with their, their technical execution or it's some variation of a barbell front squat. And for me, you know, some guys it's, it is, it's a true barbell front squat for others. We're going to use the transformer bar. And the great thing about the transformer bar is that you can change it around. And even though the barbell is on your back, you can load it such that it feels like a front squat. So in general, I'm going to find some form of a front squat variation. And I just know maybe I can't load that as much, as a deadlift variation, because that's going to be my second main lower body exercise. And generally, if a guy's taller than 6'4", if he can go all the way to the ground, that's great. For me, for most of my guys, I'm more comfortable elevating that trap bar, even if it's two to three inches off the ground. I want to make sure their back's in a great position. You know, there's a lot of benefits to picking stuff up off the ground. But the last thing I could ever deal with is getting one of my basketball guys injured in the weight room when they get paid to play their sport. All right. So you got to find some exercise that they can load the most with the least technical issues. I think that's a really key point. So I'm going to say it again, find the exercise that they can load the most with the least technical issues. And keep in mind, there's a lot of ways that you can determine what weight is appropriate. Sometimes if you've got the cool bells and whistles, if you got a gym aware like we have, you could do wherever they're achieving peak force. That's great. Well, look, for a long time, I didn't have access to a gym aware. So the key indicators that I used were when their technique changes. So imagine when somebody's squatting, if they come down and they look great, and then when they stand up, their butt starts to kick back and their chest caves over, that weight is now no longer appropriate because they're changing their technique to finish a lift or in a deadlift when they can no longer keep their spine fairly neutral when they start to you know cave through the chest when they start to round their back a little bit that weight is too heavy i'd rather drop back down keep a really nice neutral spine and get a clean push out of the bottom so you can look at it when technique changes 
Or here's another thing that I found to be really important, especially in a squat, when they can no longer utilize the stretch shortening cycle appropriately. So sometimes you'll see them and they really start to slow down the lift. They start to feel it out. They're not confident or comfortable in the lift anymore. That's when you need to switch things up. So absolutely, heavy weights have a role, but you got to know when is it appropriate for this specific client or athlete standing in front of me. Okay, number four, train the human first. And this may seem a little odd, but I think sometimes we get so caught up in this bro or this broette, they're a basketball player. So I know with a basketball player, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z lifts, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's fine. But I think once you have your model of how you want your basketball athletes to look, okay, now you need to circle back to the individual. What does this person want to get out of training? Because if you talk to 100 individuals, yeah, you know, 50 may want to improve their bunnies. Another 25 may want to improve their first step, but you just never know. You don't know what this person wants or needs until you have that discussion with them. So sometimes people might make fun of the fact that, hey, man, in my programs, we're going to bench at least one day a week, generally heavy or, you know, in a hypertrophy type zone. And at least once a week, if not more often, we're going to train some form of showy muscles. We're going to hit shoulders. We're going to hit arms. And I'm going to tell you from experience, a lot of the athletes that I work with are generally when they're growing up, they're skinny or they don't carry a lot of muscle. And so psychologically, that can be an issue. They don't feel strong. They're not confident in their own body. So it's not just about performance, but it's about confidence as well. Confidence when you step on the court that, hey, man, I put in the work. I look great. And it comes back to my boy, Joe Kent. Joe Kent has said this for years. Look good, feel good, play good. So if you're doing 80 to 90%, like really high quality stuff, great speed training, you know, smart, effective strength training, the right stuff with conditioning, man, 5, 10, 15% of just showy stuff, fluff stuff that makes them feel more confident on the court, I think carries over. I think it makes a positive impact. And, you know, look, on the flip side, sometimes this potentially changes certain elements of the program. You know, maybe not the fact that you're incorporating showy muscles, but these discussions that you have, sometimes you got to change some things up. You dig in and, you know, all of a sudden, oh, well, you know, yeah, I want to improve my vert and I want to, I want to be more explosive, but man, I've had this ankle issue. Okay. Well, now this person may be doing more single leg stuff or more split stance work than bilateral stuff, at least early on, because you want to clean up some of the movement issues that may be underlying or predisposing them to injury. So that one's really important. You got to train the human first. Don't just think about this is my, this is my basketball template that I use with every basketball player and it's proven to be successful. Like, no, train the athlete first. What do they want? What do they need? You know, and whether it's adding in more showy stuff, whether it's adding in certain elements to prevent injury or, you know, just finding ways to make them understand, hey, look, this is how you're going to become more faster or more explosive. When you train the human first, it makes everything that you do so much easier. Number five, this is a really critical one, my friend, telling you, underline this one, write it down, but give them the ability to load their system effectively. And when I say this, we need to start with this idea that we have to get over the concept of quote unquote, ideal posture in basketball especially if you're working with high-level basketball players, most everyone that you see is going to be a force production monster. 
And as such, when they're great at producing force, they obviously tend to struggle with absorbing force. So they're going to struggle to load their system effectively. That's why they're very stiff. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, that stiffness, that inability to absorb force at times is very critical for performance. You want to look at some of the highest jumpers on the planet, you know, they might suck at absorbing force or going through these big ranges of motion, but damn it, when they need to put some force into the ground and go straight up, they can do it. They got the juice. So here's how I think about this. My goal is always to write a program and to coach them in a way that gives the athlete the ability to access and load their system more effectively, even if they may not get into that exact position in a game. Right? So they have to have the ability to load their system effectively, even if they may not use all of that range of motion in a game environment. So let me give you an example. Let's say an athlete is accelerating and they are going to do what I would describe as a lunge stop. All right. So they're going to put their front foot out in front of them to, you know, basically create separation. So again, this may be hard for you to envision, but I will do my best. Let's say I'm a basketball player. I'm standing at the top of the key, right? I'm heading or I'm pointing directly towards the basket if you're not into basketball. All right. So I'm going towards the basket. The defender is up close to me. I try to accelerate past him. So I get his momentum going backwards. To create separation, I would put my foot out in front of me, right? It would look like a forward lunge in an effort to push back, okay? So the goal here is to stop quickly, right? So I may not go through this massive range of motion. Again, I might use that stiffness. and might go through a very shallow joint angle at the ankle, the knee, the hip. Again, it's got to be quick so I can take a step back and I can get a shot off. So it looks like that forward lunge, but it's a little bit more shallow. Now, you may think, okay, well, that's how they do it in a game, so I want to train that. And there is a time and place. Don't get me wrong. Especially in R4, when we're doing our speed work, that's how I'm going to train it. But there's also benefit, at least in my opinion, to teaching them how to do that through a larger range of motion. Because here's what gets athletes into bad situations. Let's say you're doing that lunge stop, and you're doing it quick through a short, small range of motion. That's fine if you're doing it for a sports performance perspective, but if you don't have access to more range, that's when things start to get blown up. That's when all of a sudden your ankles, your knees, your hips, your lower back start to get irritated because you don't have access to more range. So you, you know, if you ever get into a position where you can't stop there, now you really start to blow some things up and it's not good. It's not good. So I want to expose them to greater ranges of motion. I want to give them access to a larger range. So this is where, hey, a forward lunge is a great exercise. Can we teach them to load it effectively? Can we teach them to go through a full range of motion, through the ankles, the knees, the hips, keeping the pelvis underneath them so we load the body more effectively? You know, and again, in a game environment, maybe they never need access to it. That's fine. But I think giving them that buffer zone, that's the way I think of it. Giving them that small movement buffer zone can make a huge impact on how they feel, and it can also make a huge impact on their longevity. Because here's one thing, the higher level you go, the more games you're gonna play. In high school, you're playing 25 games, I would I would guess. I'm not totally sure how long a high school season is anymore, but you're probably playing 25 games. College season, you're playing 30 plus games. 
The second you go from that to a professional season, 40 to 50 games, I would assume, overseas, you're talking 80 to 90 plus games in the NBA. So resiliency, that longevity is so critical as you move up and you progress in levels. So that's a key piece for me. Now, keep in mind, the same thing could be said with a lateral shuffle. If you're lateral shuffling, if you're playing defense, you may not need access to these massive hip ranges of motion. But if I can teach you to load your hips more effectively, again, when you get into those precarious positions, you've got a buffer zone. You're not going to blow something up. You're not going to tear a labrum or sprain an ankle because you can load your body more effectively. So that's point number five. Give them the ability to load their system more effectively. Number six, explain lateral acceleration to your athletes. And this is something that I really had to work on early on. I played basketball my whole life, but I probably wasn't the best mover on the planet. In fact, I guarantee I wasn't. And I was taught, you know, the old school ways of moving. It's like when you lateral shuffle, if you have to change direction, you pivot. Thank goodness I came across Lee Taft and his work. He's been so influential in what I've done. So, you know, there's no more pivoting. There's a hip turn. But when it comes to lateral acceleration, I think there's three levels to this in basketball. And this is how I explain it to my athletes. There's level one, which is just your old school defensive shuffle, lateral shuffle, whatever you want to call it. And that is the guy's kind of cruising along or he's moving at a speed in which I can stay in front of him. So I can keep my shoulders square to him throughout. That is level one, lateral shuffle. Level two is what's called a crossover step. And this is something that I'm probably only going to use for a second or two or for a step or two. But let's say somebody gets by me, right? But I think I can square them back up. In this case, what it is, it's a push with the outside foot. It's a run from the lower half, but my shoulders are staying more square to my man or to my girl, you know, whoever I'm guarding, right? So it's one or two steps, and then I'm going to try and square back up. I'm going to square my hips so that I can get back into a more proper defensive stance. So that is level two. Level three is, the way I describe it to my my athletes, it's O-S word, (laughs) oh shit, I've got to turn and sprint. I've got to get back level with this person because I am beat. And so this is where you can get really specific with your coaching of your basketball players. You know, in soccer, they don't really shuffle all that much. It's generally more of like a big crossover step or you may shuffle for a step or two, but it's a lot of level three. It's turn and run. So I think one of the most important things that you can do with your basketball players or your athletes is to make it contextual and relevant, right? So find ways to describe it to them first, like I just did. And then you find ways to layer and train all three of these elements over time. So for me, defensive shuffle is the first piece of the puzzle. You got to be able to do that first and foremost. Once you've done that, then we can build up to a crossover step, which I feel is probably the most challenging for most of the athletes to figure out. They have all kinds of different ways that they want to do this. Some like turn and run so their shoulders get too far around. You know, there's lots of ways they can screw that up. So that's kind of like, you know, it's level two, but there's a lot of times where I actually wait until I've taught them level three, which is just turn and run. 
So I'd teach them one, teach them three, and then level two is maybe somewhere in between. So you gotta find the sequence that works the best for you, but if you find ways to make it contextual and to explain it well to them, I think they're, they're much more likely to buy in, and ultimately, they're going to move so much better on the court because they're gonna have better tools in their toolbox. So that's number six, find ways to explain lateral acceleration to them. Number seven, you have to teach them to find better angles. And this is something that I had no clue about when I was growing up. I had no clue about finding better angles, but if you want a great equalizer, teach an athlete to find better angles. Even if they're not the quickest, they're not the fastest athlete on the world. If they find better angles, they will look faster because they will be in better positions at all times. So the way I try and describe this to my ballers is the angles of your body reflect where you're going to go. So let's say we're teaching linear acceleration. If I want to project straight forward, I need my knees over my toes and I need an angle to my torso. So think angled tibia, angled torso. That is going to project me forward. Now, when an athlete describes to me as, oh, hey man, I really wanna improve my first step, but I can't figure out why I'm slow. When I watch them move and the first thing that they do is, they have an angle to their torso, but their tibia is straight up and down. I explained to them very quickly, if you can't load your angles, <laughs> load your ankles more effectively, then you're not gonna be able to be in the right angle to produce force horizontally. For a lot of them, this is this massive light bulb moment. And they're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense because they're not covering any ground on that first step. So whether it's teaching them linear acceleration in that first step and teaching them, teaching them how to get into that angled tibia, angled torso position, or maybe in a defensive stance, teaching them to widen out their base. So a lot of times when I'm teaching a hip turn, which again is so much, or so far superior to your standard turn and pivot, when I'm teaching somebody to hip turn and they're not covering any ground on that first step, generally what you see is their feet are too narrow their feet are almost under their base of support. So if you imagine you're kind of in this like half squat position, and then even if you hip turn, you know, you don't have the right, you don't have the right angle to produce force in a horizontal direction. You can't push laterally. So it's very simple. Get them to widen their base. Now they hip turn. With that wider base, when they do hip turn, now they've got this great foot position. They've got this great angle to produce force into the ground so that they can track a guy or girl laterally. So finding angles is so critical to becoming faster. And we can talk about all the speed training methods known to man, but a big part of this is just efficiency. Can you teach your athlete to find better angles, to get into better starting positions so that they can be more effective while expending less energy? So teach your athletes to find better angles. That's number seven. Number eight, this may sound shocking to you as a physical preparation coach, but number eight, coach the defensive position, coach a defensive stance. And I guarantee this is gonna sound crazy. It may come as a surprise, but I have numerous guys that I worked with this off season that have played at a very high level in the collegiate ranks. They will get paid to play basketball somewhere next year, and they could not get into a proper defensive stance. Couldn't do it, could not get into a proper defensive stance. Now, you may be thinking, how on earth is that possible? 
this athlete has been playing basketball for probably no less than 15 years. Probably more like 16, 17, 18 years. They've been playing basketball since they were three or four years old. Here they are, 21 or 22, can't get into a proper defensive stance. And there's lots of movement limitations we can talk about, right? Stiff backs, stiff gastrocs, their anterior weight bearing. You name it, I've seen it. To kind of circle back to this idea of squatting, if you can't pull off a halfway decent squat, you can't get into a proper defensive position. I don't care how you want to try and coach it or finagle it. If they can't squat, remember, angled tibia, upright torso. If they can't do that, they are going to struggle to load their body effectively. And what you'll end up seeing in most cases is it'll almost look like a hip hinge. Their tibia will be very vertical. Their torso will be almost like perpendicular to their tibia, right? So if you're thinking about their torso, it's very angled. It's very bent over. It almost looks like they're in an RDL position. This is how they're trying to play defense. And it may not hurt. It may be pain-free, but they can't move very well laterally in this position. They need to be able to squat. They need to be able to load their quads. So I'm going to walk you through how I coach a defensive position. And it's crazy that I have to do this on day one with these level of athletes, but I do. So here's how I break it down for them. Number one, I want them to feel their whole foot. You got to feel their whole foot. You got to feel your heels, but the weight shifted to the front of the foot, right? The weight is shifted forward. Now, what you'll see too often is that either their weight is shifted very far back. And again, if their weight's on their heels, generally it's going to almost look like an RDL or if they can't reconcile this position, sometimes what they'll do is they'll get almost all their weight on their toes and their heels will come up off the ground. That's no bueno either, right? So you have to feel that whole foot connection, but the weight on the front of the foot. I want the feet wider than shoulder width apart. Remember, when we're talking about finding angles laterally, when we're pushing from side to side, you need this wide base of support. It cleans up the angles. It makes for great lateral acceleration mechanics. And it also gives you balance and that ability to move seamlessly from side to side. I want the knees over the toes. And man, I might get roasted from certain basketball guys for saying this, but if you want to move quickly side to side or be able to change foot positions and be able to accelerate or retreat or do every, anything that you need to be able to do, you need to have your knees over your toes and your chest needs to be upright. Last but not least, I want the hands wide, okay? especially with some of the guys that I get, we're talking 6'6 to upwards of 7 feet, 7'2", seven 7'3". Seven you need the hands wide and you want to use that length, right? You want to create havoc defensively. Now, I realize it's not rocket science. What I described to you is not rocket science, but for some of your athletes, it might be. They may think, man, I'm amazing defensively. I've got this amazing defensive stance. And then they show it to you and it looks like an RDL. <laughs> Sorry, but there's a better way to do this. And once they get comfortable in that position, now they can really start to express their athleticism. That's the way I always describe it to them. It's like, look, you might be great. And in fact, I'm sure you are great. That's how you've gotten to this level. But it's my goal to have a better vision for you. It's my goal to make you an even better athlete so that you can be successful and so that you can thrive at the next level. So you've got to combine this smart training that improves their position with, you know, giving them the, the foundational, basically coaching that they need 
to do this more effectively. You got to build the program to get them into the position, and then you got to teach them how to be in that position to be more effective. So I hope that makes sense. But teaching the defensive stance may not be sexy. It may not be the most exciting thing for you or for them, but I guarantee it will pay dividends if you can teach it more effectively. Number nine, give them context. And this is something that I think as an industry, we can do a better job of. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make when it comes to training clients or athletes is giving them context. So I'll give you an example. A lot of the coaches that I talk to on the podcast or live and in person say, oh yeah, I'm a big believer in the big movement patterns. So everybody's going to squat, everybody's going to hinge, everybody's going to push up. Right. Like I get it. And I think that's right. Like I do that too. But why? Why are those patterns important for this individual? Because the reason that you squat for somebody that wants to build muscle is different than why somebody would squat for fat loss. It's maybe different for somebody that wants to improve their vertical jump. You see where I'm going with this? So we have to find context. We have to find analogies that are relevant to them. So when we talk about why do we squat? Well, it could be to give them quads so that they can accelerate. Quads so that they can vertical jump. Quads so they can hold and maintain a proper defensive stance. So squatting for basketball, again, lots of value there. A lunge. Okay, well, why do we lunge? Well, to control momentum, to give them stability and control so they don't blow up their knees or their hips. So we can teach them to accelerate or decelerate in a single foot position or with one foot in front of the other. Why do we do a push-up? Obviously for core training, right? It's, I mean, everybody thinks a push-up is an upper body exercise. I think of it more as a total body exercise, but we do it for core stability. We do it to integrate and to unify the upper and lower body. We also do it because if the core is positioned well, it's going to reduce stress on the back, on the knees. It's going to help keep our athletes healthy. The hinge, well, the posterior chain is like our insurance policy for our knees. You want to keep your knees healthy? Great. Train the posterior chain. Maybe we're going to train it to improve horizontal force output, like acceleration or first step. So don't assume that just because something makes sense to you, that it makes sense to them. Find ways to give your basketball players context. Help them understand, look, this is this exercise that we're doing, whether it's in R4, whether you're on the court doing reactive speed-based work, or you're in the gym. Find ways to give them context. Make it relevant so that they can start to connect the dots and understand why every piece of your program is geared towards helping them become a better basketball player. Number 10. I save this for last because it's something that I love talking about, but you have to find this ideal blend of vertical jump training. And this is something that, again, the pundits on the internet, they love to argue about this stuff. And it really is a major point. I don't think you're ever going to meet a basketball player that doesn't want to jump higher. I mean, Glenn Robinson, slam dunk champion. The guy told me when he was at Michigan, he touched 12-4. They had to put the Vertec up on like another box to basically max out his vertical. That's how explosive he was. You know what? When I talked to him last offseason, when we first started working together, he said, hey, man, look, you can add a little bit to the vert. I'm all for it. <laughs> you know, so it leads us to this question of how much jump training is enough? Do you do it every day? Every other day? How many foot contacts do you have? And this is such a Pandora's box and it's such a loaded topic. 
but I want to give you some insights here. I think when it comes to young athletes, they may need a fair amount of, of jump training to improve. And we have to remember the fact that jumping is a skill. It is a coordinative skill that needs to be trained. And if I can go back to, again, that thesis research years and years and years ago, one of the things that they found was when you strength train athletes, you can improve all of their measurables, right? Like let's say you're, you're squatting and you're doing all the things in the gym. That's great. But if you don't add in vertical jump training, it doesn't always equate to a higher vertical jump. But when you start to reintroduce the jump training with that newfound or newly laid foundation of strength development, now you can see performance improvements. So we can't forget that fact. Jumping is a coordinative task. It's a coordinative activity and it's something that we have to train. Now, your seasoned vets. Now, I haven't worked with guys, you know, in their mid to late 30s. I know some of our guys in the NBA definitely have. You know, if you're training Vince Carter, probably don't need to train a lot of vertical jump training with him. Chances are he has that skill locked in. You know, and if they if you are going to do any jump-based training, it's to maintain power output. And if you're going to do that, you got to minimize stress to the body, right? You're not having them land from 35 or 40 plus inches. Have them jump, have them land on a box. But look, most athletes are somewhere in between. You're not going to train them every single day and you're not going to train them like once a week or once a month either. So here's how I program jump training for probably 80 to 90% of the athletes that I work with. And we're talking from high school to college guys to professionals. If they're going to jump, they're going to do somewhere between 15 to 25 total jumps per session. Now that may seem low on the volume side, and I'm okay with that because I am very, very focused on quality. I don't want these guys getting 100 foot contacts and they're all garbage, they're all submaximal. It's kind of like the Charlie Francis sprint-based stuff. You know, that middle zone really gives you nothing. Either go low intensity or go high intensity, but be clear in what you're trying to get out of that session. Another thing that I'm really focused on is having this blend of single and double leg takeoffs because there's a time when somebody wants to go up off two feet when they want to gather, when they are expecting to get hit, they want to be strong. Then there's also a time when somebody's closing down space and they need to be quick up off the ground. That's where you want to have those quick single and double leg or those quick single leg takeoffs. But for me, it's being comfortable and confident going off both legs. A lot of times what I see is people are really good at one of the three. Either they're really good at, you know, either a double leg takeoff or they're really good off one leg, but the other two suck. So my goal is to always give them at least the ability to do two well, if not three, and to be comfortable and confident. Because I think of myself as kind of this, this artist, right? And Joey Burton, my, the skills guy that I work with, he is the architect right? He's the one that's adding all the skill and all that stuff. But I have to give him the foundational materials so that he can train the skills that he wants. So if he wants somebody to be able to jump off their right leg and they just physically can't do it, that's where my training can be impactful. It's because I give him a broader athlete or a broader athletic skill set to pull from based on my work. Okay. And then the final piece of this is maybe early on, it's very simple right? It's two foot takeoffs and we're landing on a box. But eventually I want to layer that into a skill. 
And again, we talked about this up front, but this ability to go from horizontal to vertical very quickly. It's rare that you get to just stand there and jump straight up unless you're like that taco fall and you're seven, six, and you can literally just stand under the basket and grab a rebound and dunk. Most of us don't have that luxury. So you need that ability to accelerate quickly, maybe get an edge on a guy and then get up quickly and finish at the basket. So that's how I program my jump training. It's pretty low volume, but very high quality. It's a blend of single and double leg takeoffs, trying to broaden that, that skill set, broaden that movement vocabulary so that when I turn him over to Joey, he can do whatever he wants with them. And it's always blending it back into the skill because we realize that jumping is rarely, if ever, performed in isolation. So my friend, that does it for this episode, 10 keys to building better basketball players. I'm gonna cycle back through them one more time. Number one, teach them how to squat. Please, it is such a foundational, not only movement skill, but it's foundational to teaching them how to move effectively on the court. Whether it's improving vertical jump, getting them to hold a good defensive stance, teaching them how to push, whether it's first step or laterally, teaching them to squat is such a foundational skill. Please take the time to do it. Number two, use the tools that you're comfortable with for speed development. Everybody's got their own tools, their own toolbox. That's great. Be comfortable in your tools. Work to widen your toolbox over time. See what you like, see what you don't like. And at the end of the day, stop the hate. Everybody is doing the best that they can with the tools that they have in their toolbox at this point in time. Use what works for you. Who cares about what anybody else says? Number three, heavyweights absolutely have a role, especially when you're developing your younger clients or your more developmental athletes. Use it. Use it strategically. Find the patterns that they can load safely and effectively and build a bigger engine because it will positively impact them on the court. Number four, train the human first. You can talk X's and O's. You can talk about the ideal movement model or the perfect basketball player. But at the end of the day, know what's important to them. Find ways to make the sport more fun. Make training more fun because if you make it contextual to them and what they want to get out of it, they're going to buy it. Number five, give them the ability to load their system. They may not access it. They may not always use it, but it's a lot better than the alternative. If somebody has access to their system and they get pushed into a position or a range that may be unfamiliar, they're more likely to stay healthy. It's going to increase their longevity. It's going to increase their resilience. So give them that ability to load their body more effectively. Number six, explain lateral acceleration to them in ways that are meaningful. Again, my three-step process are is number one, lateral shuffle. Mark a guy, stay in front of him. Number two, you get beat, but you can recover, crossover step. You're beat bad and you got to sprint, lateral turn or hip turn and go. Try and get back in front of them as quickly as possible. But explain lateral acceleration. Explain why it's important and then make it relevant to them. Number seven, work to find appropriate angles. At the end of the day, angles make you more efficient. They can make a slow athlete look quicker. So find ways to coach angles to make them more effective because it will pay off and they will see dividends on the court. Number eight, coach the defensive position. You don't think you have to do it. You probably shouldn't have to do it. I get it. But chances are most of your athletes can't get into a good defensive stance. Feel the whole foot weight forward, angled tibia, torso upright, arms wide, feet wide, 
Just be an absolute monster. Be an absolute terror on the defensive end. And if you describe it in that way, even your athletes that are all about just getting buckets, they don't care about defense. A lot of times, if you give them the tools necessary, you can get them to buy in. You can get them a little bit more excited about getting into a good defensive stance. Number nine, give them context. Give them context. All the things that you do in the weight room, I'm sure they're great. Squatting, hinging, pushing, carrying. I don't care what tools you're using. They're all valuable. But give them context. Explain to them how this will carry over to their performance on the court. And number 10, work to find that ideal blend of vertical jump training. It's going to be different at every level. You know, the 12-year-old kid that's looking to increase their vert, become a little bit more explosive, they're going to need a lot different program than the 20, 21-year NBA vet that's just looking to, to maybe play one more year and maybe win a ring. But you got to find that ideal blend. Focus on lower volume, higher quality, and make sure you don't get caught up in that middle ground where you're doing a ton of junk volume and really not getting anything out of it. So my friend, sincerely hope you enjoyed this show. I mean, 10 points, dude, I could keep going. I bet I, bet I could do 20 or 30 points because we didn't even talk about some of the other stuff I'm thinking about, like isometrics, like conditioning, like, you know, I don't know. Like there's just so many aspects of the game that I love talking about, you know, watching film. Another one that I'm, I'm huge into right now, especially with Summer League being on, but I hope this show has given you some insights as to how I go about creating a better basketball player, how I try and find every avenue possible to improve their game, whether it's on the court, whether it's in the weight room, anything in between, whether it's just educating the athletes that I work with. But sincerely hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I have a small ask. I'm really passionate about improving the training of young basketball players as a whole. And it doesn't matter whether... We're talking five years old up to 25 and in the pros. Anything in between, I want to make the training of basketball players, I I just want to help it level up. So if you would be so willing, share this episode with one basketball player that you're friends with, maybe a basketball coach that you work with, or another physical preparation coach that you know that is serious about improving their basketball players and improving their health and their performance. And if you would do that, I would appreciate it more than you know. I mean, I think the, the, the passion kind of kind of oozes through the microphone in this case because I love basketball. I love the athletes that I work with. And I just want to make sure that they have the best chance for success. And people like you that listen to this show and that share this show with others are the people that are going to help take not only the training world, but the basketball development world to the next level. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.